Y'all doing okay? Yes, yeah. sir. Katie's good. Katie's good. Baby's good. So those of you who don't know, my wife was pregnant, but she had the baby yesterday. I got a picture. You can throw that up there. So there he is. There's my youngest son, Asa. Yep. I know it. He looks so much like his brothers. But yeah, so we had a baby yesterday. That makes our fourth boy. We're very excited, very happy, very tired. But those of you who know me know that I'm already tired, so it's not that big a deal. Okay, so there's a few faces I don't recognize. I'm going to call you out. What's your name? I'm Isaiah. Isaiah? Yes. Awesome. What's your name? Vaughn. Vaughn? I'm Caitlin. Caitlin, Caitlin, Vaughn, Isaiah. Hey, we're glad you guys are here. Y'all are jumping in at the very end of a series we've been doing called The Emmaus Road. Um, who thinks they can give us a quick synopsis of what The Emmaus Road is? Go for it. Going, um, finding Jesus in every single book of the Bible. Finding Jesus in every single book of the Bible. That's exactly what it is. So in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, um, we read about two disciples who are on the road to Emmaus, which is why the series is called Emmaus Road. And while they're on this road, they meet the resurrected Christ, and um, they don't recognize him, and they're really upset because their friend, their you know, Messiah, the one they thought was going to you know, redeem Israel, he died. And so they're really mopey and they're really sad and Jesus meets with them and basically tells them like, haven't you read your scriptures? Don't you know that they're telling you about me? And he proceeds to go through all of the scriptures showing them how all of the scriptures point to himself. And so that's what we've been doing in this series is going through every book of the Bible trying to show how it points to Christ. And tonight we're in the book of Malachi, which is the last book in our Old Testament. Um, and the reason I say it's the last book in our Old Testament is because did y'all know that the Hebrew Old Testament was, was laid out a little bit differently than ours is? Did y'all know that? that? I'll give $5 to anyone who can tell me the last book in the Hebrew Old Testament. It's not Malachi. Is it, it's not Hebrews. No, Hebrews is in the New Testament. Oh, okay. Anybody want to guess? $5? No? Nope, not Jeremiah. So the Hebrew Old Testament was laid out in, in three sections. They had the law, which were the books of Moses. They had the prophets, which kind of self-explanatory. And then they had the writings, which included books like the, the Psalter, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Job, um, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. And Second Chronicles is actually the last book of the Hebrew Old Testament. Um, now, um, did you know that there are only 24 books in the Hebrew Old Testament? Did anybody know that? Does anyone know how many books we have in our Old Testament? Nobody knows? 39. 39, that's right. And did you know that the, the Hebrew Old Testament only had 24? So why do we add books? Anyone want to guess? Why do we add books to the Bible? I thought you were not supposed to do that. Ah, see, there's a trick question. We didn't actually add any books. We just organized it a little bit differently, right? So there's 24 books, and that's because books like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, those were one book. So you had one book of Chronicles, one book of Kings, one book of Samuel. Um, in fact, all of the minor prophets were all in one book. So you had one book of the minor prophets, not you didn't have Malachi standing on its own, you didn't have Amos standing on its own or anything like that. Um, now, the reason I did that is because... Um, the reason that I mentioned it is because at some point or another, 
um, especially uh, those of you who are a little bit older, uh, those of you who have graduated, um, those of you who just graduated, um, at some point or another, um, you're, you're going to uh, run into folks who attempt to shake your faith. And they're going to say stupid things like, did you know that the Hebrew Old Testament had less books than our Old Testament? Um, and they're, they're I- I- intentionally wording things that way in order to try to trip you up or in order to try to shake your faith, to make you doubt the, um, uh, the veracity, the authenticity, the, the sureness of God's word. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that all of the content in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, is exactly the same as it is in our English Old Testament. We just happen to organize it a little bit differently. Um, and so when you hear foolishness from the world that is attempting to, um, to shake your faith, um, you can just let that roll off your back. You don't, have to, um, you, you don't have to let anybody in the world try to sow seeds of doubt in your life. Um, in fact, you know, Jesus said that the one who builds his life on his word is like one who builds his ha- house on a rock, right? Like a, like a solid foundation. Um, you, at the end of the day, what, what I'm trying to communicate is that you can trust God's words, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise, okay? Does that make sense? Now, can anyone tell me anything about the book of Malachi? Anything at all? When it was written, who wrote it? It's the last book of our Bible. It's the last book of our Bible. Anything else? Did Malachi write it? Malachi wrote it. Excellent. We got a, we got a resident scholar over here. Anything else? Huh? The priests were rebu- rebuked in the book of Malachi. You're very correct. Now, was Malachi pre-exile, during the exile, or post-exile? Post-exile, right? post that's correct. Yeah, so he prophesied after the exile. And so he's what we, we would call a post, um, post-exilic prophet. And he uh, prophesied around the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah. And so because of this, we see Malachi dealing with a lot of the, um, the same things that Ezra and Nehemiah were dealing with, um, such as intermarrying with pagan uh, foreign people, the neglect of the tithe, and the corrupt priesthood. Um, Primarily, uh, one of the main things they were focusing on was the sins of the previous generations that led to their exile. And so the primary theme that we see in the book of Malachi is this theme of the covenant. And as we've discussed previously, this focus on the covenant should not be a surprise to us, right? Does anyone remember um, when we went through the book of Amos, I pointed out two things about prophecy. I said, if you don't take anything else away, remember these two things about prophecy. Does anyone remember what those two things were? Hey, but it's online. There's no excuse. (laughs) I said, there's two things we need to remember about prophecy. Can anyone tell me what one of them is? It comes directly from God. That's true, but that's not one of the things I pointed out. All right, so the two things we have to remember whenever we're looking at any prophetic utterance in Scripture, whether it's a prophetic book, whether it's simply uh, somebody saying something, and then uh, down you read a little bit farther, and it says that this was, he was speaking prophetically. Anytime we read prophecy in Scripture, we have to remember two things. The two things are, first and foremost, prophecy is forth-telling, not foretelling, primarily speaking. So... When people think of prophecy, the first thing that comes to mind is they think, oh, somebody's going to predict the future, right? Who's going to win the presidential election? Well, I prophesy it's going to be Donald J. Trump or whatever. Um, We had a lot of people uh, prophesying, quote-unquote, that back in 2020, and all of them failed. 
Um, but anyways, people think that that's what prophecy is, is you're just predicting the future. But that's not primarily what it is. Like Logan said, it's, it, it's a word that comes directly from God. They were uh, bringing forth God's word. That's why I say they're forth-telling. And then the other thing, the second thing, is that all prophecy in Scripture is covenantal. It's somehow, some way or another, tied to God's covenant with his people. And so the fact that Malachi focuses on the covenant that Israel made with God is not a surprise to us because that's one of the primary uh, focuses of all of prophecy in Scripture. It's always tied to God's covenant. And so um, throughout the book of Malachi, we see the unfaithfulness of Israel demonstrated in several areas, including the corrupt priesthood and the marriage covenant. And these things were only symptoms of their unfaithfulness to God and his covenant. And so chapter 1 begins, I'm going to read uh, uh, verse 2. Chapter 1 begins with God reiterating his love for Israel. He tells them in verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. So in this opening verse, uh, we see God is reminding Israel that he chose them. That it wasn't their actions that brought them into fellowship with him, but it was the sovereign choice of God that brought them near. And this is true of all those that have been saved, period. Um, As a matter of fact, Paul actually quotes this verse in Romans chapter 3. And uh, in Romans chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, he says this, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on uh, uh, human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So the reason that anyone has been brought into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ is because of God's sovereign choice in election. And that was true for the old covenant Israel, uh, as well as it is true for every born-again believer here in the new covenant. And that's not my opinion. That's just a biblical fact. That's what the scriptures tell us. And one of the reasons that I mention this is because when we speak of salvation, uh, we see the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Does everyone understand what I mean when I say continuity? We kind of see some consistent threads between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, How are people saved in the Old Testament? They were saved by God choosing them and giving them faith. And how are people saved in the New Testament and beyond? Same way. The, The exact same way. God choosing them and giving them faith. Now, while there is continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is also discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And when we speak of salvation, like we have been, um, we see this at play, right? Um, In the Old Testament, people were saved by God choosing them and giving them faith. But they had faith that looked forward to a promise that would be fulfilled at a later time. Whereas people in the New Testament, right, and beyond, right, we don't look forward to a a promise that will be fulfilled. We look back to a promise that has been fulfilled, right? So we see that there's continuity, right? We see some consistency between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but we see that there are some differences. Does that make sense? And so, um, um, so, um, as we uh, move into the, the New Testament, we need to be aware of the fact that there is continuity with the Old Testament, and there's discontinuity with the Old Testament. And there's room for disagreement as far as where that continuity and that discontinuity lies. Uh, but at the end of the day, we have to recognize that both exist. There's not wholesale continuity 
and there's not wholesale discontinuity, right? Some people want to say that, no, it's one-to-one. -one. Everything in the Old Covenant is exactly the same in the New Covenant. Not quite. And some people want to say, no, everything in the Old Covenant was, was completely different, and everything in the New Covenant is something, com something else completely, something else entirely. It's not that either. There's continuity and there's discontinuity. Does, that, does all that make sense? Okay. So, so we've seen as the book opens, right, God reiterating the fact that he chose them. And as we continue in chapter 1, uh, we then see the indictment of the priesthood. As we read in verse 6, a son honors his father, father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priest, who despise my name? We see that the priests, and priests represented the people before God. Uh, these priests have profaned God's name. Specifically, they offered polluted sacrifices. Uh, God points out in verses 8 and 9 that these priests know full well that a human governor would not accept polluted sacrifices, uh, nor would he show favor to those he offered it. Yet the people disobeyed. They not only disobeyed God's prescriptions for worship, right? In the law, God had specific uh, guidelines for how sacrifices were to be offered. Um, so they disobeyed those, um, and they presumed to entreat on God's favor. In, in other words, they feared the human governor, right? They knew that, okay, if I give a human governor this polluted sacrifice, he's not going to accept it, and actually he's going, to have, he's going to be really upset with me. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give him only the best stuff. But when it comes to God, man, I might skimp a little. I might, you know, cut around the corners. I might, uh, you know, keep some for myself. You know, I might, I, might keep, I might keep the best for myself, and I might give God something lesser than that. And so by doing this, they demonstrated that they did not fear God by offering him polluted sacrifices. And when you think about it, this is extremely wicked and extremely sinful to knowingly disobey and offer polluted sacrifice and yet to ask for God's gracious blessings. Yet, the reality is, is that we do this very same thing. In fact, as Paul put it, we continue in sin so that grace may abound. Right? And he says, by no means should we do that. But we do it anyways. We knowingly disobey God's word. We knowingly pursue sinful passions and desires. And we have the audacity to presume upon God's blessings. God has a word for such people in Malachi. Uh, chapter 1, verse 10, he says, I have no pleasure in you, and I will not accept an offering from your hands. And so right out the gate, we see the seriousness of the prophecy that Malachi was bringing to these people. And then as we, uh, as we move into chapter 2, Yahweh then begins to rebuke the priests for their sin. In verses 7 and 8, we read this, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts, but you have turned aside from the way, and you have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Now, one of the primary jobs of the priest was to instruct the people in the law of God. Now, what do you think will happen if the priesthood becomes corrupt? What will happen when they turn aside from rightly dividing God's word and rightly teaching people God's truth? Well, the people will inev inevitably go astray. Similarly, uh, it, Today, it is the duty of pastors to rightly divide God's word so uh, that God's people may have true knowledge of who God is. 
Now, what do you think will happen if pastors do not rightly divide the word of truth? The Apostle Paul tells us this in 2 Timothy, Timothy chapter 4. He says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ, who is, the ju- who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, uh, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So the pastor or the teacher is to hold fast to God's word so that God's people are not led astray. And this is true for teachers at any level or leaders at any level, whether you're a pastor or a deacon or you're simply a lay leader in a church or you're a father or you're a, pa- a mother or uh, you're a small group leader or you're simply leading your friends for, you know, peer to peer. If we are to lead people in truth, whether that is our friends our neighbors, our parents, children, whatever, we must hold fast to God's word. Now, if you recall, when we looked at the book of Amos, we saw that in, in chapter 8, what truly destroys a nation is not a famine of, of food and water, but is a famine of hearing God's word. When the people do not hear God's word, that's what truly starves and destroys a nation. And I think the craziness and the downfall that we're witnessing in our own nation demonstrates this truth. But how could this happen in a place like America, right? How, uh, we were founded on fundamentally Christian presuppositions. So how do, how does, how does, how do we have such just thorough decay in our culture in a nation that was built on Christian principles? How does that happen? Well, this happens in large part when pastors corrupt the word of God. And it also happens when God's people do not hold their leaders accountable and demand the rightly divided word of truth. As much as it is the responsibility of the pastor or the teacher to rightly teach God's word, it is the responsibility of the people to demand nothing less from their leaders. So as you, you sitting here in front of me, as you grow in your faith, as you enter into new seasons of life, you need not only to hold fast to the word of God yourself, but you need to hold your leaders accountable to the standard of God's word and demand that they not pervert, distort, or corrupt it. Moving on in the book of Malachi, Malachi then moves from the priests and he begins to indict Judah, the nation of Judah as a whole, for her unfaithfulness. Uh, He says this in verse 11, Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now, when uh, it mentions the daughter of a foreign god, it's not simply speaking uh, about race. It's not simply saying it was somebody of a different ethnicity. Uh, It's referring to a person, right, specifically a woman, who is an idolater, uh, a woman who is still committed to foreign gods. In other words, she's a pagan. Now, the reason that this is significant is because part of the terms of God's covenant is that they not intermarry with those who are outside of the covenant. Can anyone tell me why God would prohibit this? Why would God say, I'm making a covenant with you and you cannot, you cannot marry anyone outside of this covenant? Why would he say that? Because marriage is a covenant between two believers. And also, kind of like what you were saying with like a corrupted 
church leader polluting like the the social environment that they're preaching to. I mean, if you're constantly surrounded by somebody who believes in another God, it's bound to corrupt you. Right, absolutely. That's, and, th and that's the key. Sin corrupts. Sin pollutes. Bad company corrupts good character. Because, the, and if you look throughout all of Israel's laws, all of their laws were meant to demonstrate the fact that when you, as something holy, something clean, something set apart by God, when you come into contact with something that is dirty, that's defiled, that's corrupted, you too come, become corrupted. That's why when they touched a dead animal, they had to stay outside the camp for X amount of days. That's why whenever they came into contact with certain things, they had to uh, remove themselves so as not to defile the rest of the people. And so the New Testament actually picks up on this theme when it speaks about being unequally yoked. And so, um, yes, it was true for Old Covenant Israel. It was wrong for them to knowingly marry those who are outside of, of the covenant with God. And the same is true for us today. If you're a Christian and you're knowingly entering into marriage with an unbeliever, you do so contrary to God's word and you do so at your own peril. And as we move down into verse 13, we read this. Uh, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards your, your offering or accepts it uh, with favor from your hand. And the funny thing is, is they don't understand. They don't understand why God would not accept their offering. They don't get that. It's the reason God refuses to accept their offering is because they continue in sin. And many people do that today, right? They continue in sin. They act contrary to God and his word. And then they presume that God will hear and answer their prayers. They assume that God will continue to bless them even though they continue in sin. And it simply doesn't work that way. If you're walking in disobedience, if you have, uh, then you have no reason to presume that God will accept your offerings or that he will hear your prayers or that he will bless you. Now, uh, we also see, right, in, in, this, in this section, we see here that tears and emotion do not constitute true repentance. Uh, many people think that if they can just, like, cry enough, if they can just show enough emotion, um, then then that means they're truly repentant, right? But we see here in this section, right? We see here in this section, what does it say? Um, the, uh, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, and with weeping, and with groaning, right? We see here that it isn't, the, it, it isn't emotion that substantiates a claim is either true or false. Rather, what vindicates and what validates a claim to repentance is right action. Now, don't get me wrong, right? I'm not saying that outward conformity to God's word is equal to true repentance either, right? A lot of people know how to go through the motions. A lot of people know how to put on a show. Putting on a show is not the same thing as doing the right thing. But what I am saying is that Malachi re recognizes the emptiness in their tears because they continue in sin. You can cry all the tears you want, but if you do not change your ways, your tears mean nothing. Your weeping means nothing. Your groaning means nothing. And the Apostle John says in his first epistle, he says, if we say we have fellowship in him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. If we claim the name of Christ, yet we continue to walk in sin, we're liars. If we cry tears of sorrow over sin, yet continue to walk in sin, we're liars. At the end of the day, if we say one thing and we do something else, Scripture says we're supposed to believe your actions. The actions are what's telling 
the truth. We are to believe one's actions regardless of their tears or their outward confession. And the final uh, verse in chapter 2 is actually a very interesting one. Um, There we read this. We see, uh, the Lord, uh, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Uh, But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or, Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now, this concept, right, of calling uh, uh, what is evil good and calling what is good evil is confirmed elsewhere in Scripture. In Isaiah uh, 5.20, we read, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And in Proverbs 17.15, we read, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. We see that it wearies the Lord when we say that God is okay with sin. When we so devalue the holiness of God by downplaying the seriousness of our sin. If we live in sin and we have found some sort of way to rationalize it, to justify it, know that the Lord will be wearied by our words and that we're actually in danger of being under God's judgment. Then moving on into chapter 3. Chapter 3 opens with a prophecy about a messenger of Yahweh who would go before him and prepare the way for him. It was a common practice in those days for, um, for a messenger to be sent before the visitation of a king in order to announce his coming and to remove any hindrances that might get in his way. This coupled with the fact that this announcement was coming from Yahweh himself meant that this messenger was to precede the coming of the Messiah. And we know that it is ultimately pointing us to John the Baptist, the one who would prepare the way of the Lord. In fact, Jesus himself said in Matthew 11 that John the Baptist is the one of whom Malachi speaks in his prophecy. Then in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 3, Yahweh says, uh, For I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. From the days of old, you have turned aside from my statutes, and you have not kept them. If there's anything that I think could summarize Old Covenant Israel, it would be these few verses. Um, There we see that from the beginning, Israel had not kept covenant with God, right? It says, um, uh, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. So Israel had not kept covenant with God. And we know that it is ultimately because they could not keep covenant with God. Apart from God's grace, no one is able to follow God. No one is able to obey his commands. And yet, despite this fact, right, despite the fact that from the days of their fathers, they turned aside from keeping his statutes, Israel was kept in covenant with God. Why? Why were they kept in covenant with God? Because of God's unchanging character, right? He says, for I, the Lord, do not change. I do not change. Therefore, O Jacob, you are not consumed. It wasn't anything that they did. Rather, it was the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. And this reality of man's inability and God's unmerited grace is looking forward to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it is only through God's sovereign election and his unchanging character that we are kept. If it were up to us, we would have walked away a long time ago. But it is only by God replacing hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. By God putting his spirit within his people so that they may be careful to walk in his statutes and obey his rules. Because Yahweh does not change. We, the children of the true Israel, 
we are not consumed. God then tells the people, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. We uh, heard something similar when we looked at um, uh, uh, the book of Zechariah in chapter 1. And if you all remember a couple of weeks ago, Tim pointed out uh, that the reward for following God was not more stuff. It wasn't uh, lots of money or fast cars or big houses or whatever suits your fancy. No, the reward for following God was God himself. Return to me and I will return to you. The people then ask, right here in, in Malachi, how shall we return? Right? I think that's a fair question. God says, return to me and I'll return to you. Well, how do we return? Solid question. God then responds, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. So the people return to the land, right? Malachi is a post-exilic prophet. This is happening after the exile. So the people have returned to the land. They have rebuilt the temple and they are reestablishing the proper worship of God. And yet they are robbing God by not giving him his due in the tithe. As we've already discovered, if, if there's a discrepancy between our words and our actions... Our actions are typically telling the truth. So the people returned to God in word, right? But indeed, they were withholding the full tithe, therefore demonstrating the fact that they had not actually turned to God with their whole heart. Now, sadly, in our day, the, the importance of the tithe is completely lost on us. Um, most Christians, and I say this, um, you know, I say this, uh, you know, being somewhat honest, most Christians do not regularly tithe. And I, like I said, I say this from experience because uh, for a long time, I was one of those Christians who do not tithe regularly. I just thought that was something that old people did because they had lots of money. Um, now, that said, I don't think the, ap- the application here is strictly about the tithe, although tithing is, is a very important principle. Um, and I think a strong case could be made for that here from this text. But rather, I believe that the point of Malachi's prophecy is that if we, is that it, it, it's really to point out that the people return to God, but they hadn't returned to God with their whole heart. Uh, had they given God the full tithe and it was uh, separate, right, from a heart that had been made alive by faith, they would still not have truly returned, right? That would just be outward conformity. They'd just be going through the motions. They'd just be uh, putting on a show saying, oh yeah, we're doing the right thing, but actually they're not doing the right thing because in their hearts, they don't actually have any interest in honoring God or obeying him. So what we need to recognize is that when God says, return to me, he means fully return to me. He means return to me with your whole heart, not just in bits and pieces, right? Not just, well, I'll give a little bit here, but I'm not going to give a little bit there. I'm going to withhold here because I like that, but, you know, I'll give some here because, you know, I don't really care about, about that. Either we return to God with our whole heart or we have not returned at all. God either has all of us or he has none of us. And if he has all of us, then we are not free to neglect any part of his word. And I think that's what Malachi is getting here, right? They had returned to the land, but God says, you're robbing me. Return to me and I will return to you. And they say, well, how do we return? He's like, quit robbing me. Quit saying you want me and disobeying me. Now, I believe that that is what God is communicating. The people have returned in bits and pieces, but their disobedience demonstrated that they had not returned to God with their whole heart. We should take heed lest we fall. We should be careful not to assume that we are right with God because we maintain a certain level of outward conformity, like post-exilic Israel. Rather, we should examine ourselves 
and the areas of our lives that have not been submitted to God and his word, and we should quickly repent and address those areas. Now, finally, as we get to chapter 4, Malachi is a very short book. It's only four very short chapters. Um, We are given a prophecy of the great day of the Lord. And being such a short chapter, I'm just going to read the whole chapter for us in um, in its entirety. Let me flip to it over here. So here is um, God's word, Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall uh, shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And that's how the book closes. In this chapter, right, we see God's judgment coming for those who do evil. It also communicates to us that God will one day completely eradicate evil, leaving, as it says, neither root nor branch. That it is an important part of the Christian hope that Christ will subdue and conquer his enemies. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death, as 1 Corinthians tells us. We also see that God intends to save those who fear his name. We not only read of the victory of the Messiah, but the victory of those who follow him. As, as you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. We need not fear anything that the world throws at us, because our Lord and Savior is victorious, and we share in that victory. We also see another prophecy concerning John the Baptist in verse when it speaks of Elijah coming before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And the book ends with the threat of utter destruction upon the land, which is a somewhat ominous note when you think about it, uh, to end the Old Testament on. Uh, The final chapter demonstrates to us that the restoration of Israel was yet to be accomplished, right? They had returned to the land. Even though the exilic judgment was over, there was still sin that needed to be dealt with. There was still evil that needed to be vanquished, And this is how we see Christ in Malachi. You see, this reminder of ongoing sin and the presence of evil and the incomplete restoration points us forward to the coming Messiah. For it was he who would pay the price for the sins of his people. It is he who would destroy evil once and for all. And it is he who would restore his people to right fellowship with the Father. So, now we've completed the old testament right and you know i guess i knew this but it kind of hit me a couple weeks ago when tim was teaching and he mentioned that we're coming kind of to the end of the emmaus road right as as jesus would have would have walked through it um because you got to remember that at the time of jesus there was no new testament um and i knew that right i knew that the the scriptures that he opened and demonstrated hey these point to me were the old testament scriptures but it just kind of hit me in a different way when he pointed that out like we're kind of coming to the end of the emmaus road and what a, what a privilege it is for us as New Covenant believers to be able to open the New Testament, right? And to see a fuller revelation of Christ 
in the New Testament, right? Something that these disciples didn't get to do, although they got to actually see the incarnate Christ, which, you know, you can kind of choose which one's better. But all that to say, right, um, as we transition now from the Old Testament to the New Testament, as we transition from the passing away of that old covenant to the inauguration of that new and better covenant, as we move from the types and the shadows to the reality and the substance, right, from the seeds of promise, right, a promise that will be filled, fulfilled in the, in the future to the ripened fruits of fulfillment, a promise that has been fulfilled. We need to remember everything we've learned and everything we've read up until this point. Let us remember that it was always bringing us right here, right? It was always pointing us, bringing us to Jesus Christ and his gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that in your word, Lord, we see true, reliable testimony of who you are. Lord, we thank you that we can build our lives upon your word. And Lord, as we look to your word, we thank you, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, whether it's the Gospels or it's the Chronicles, Lord, we thank you that we can see Christ in these books. God, I pray for these students. I pray that as we have gone through this series, Lord, I pray that over and over and over again, all they see is more of Christ. And I pray that as they continue to open and study their Bibles, all they would see is more and more and more of Christ. God, I thank you for the book of Malachi. I thank you that, Lord, it demonstrates to us the need that we have for sin to be dealt with. Lord, and we know that the promise, Lord, the promise of full restoration, the promise of of restoration to right fellowship with you, we know that the promise of having sin dealt with, sin destroyed, put away, we know that the promise has been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise you for all these things, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.